Tickets are now available for the 100th episode News Weekly, live on January 19th, 7pm at the Comedy Republic in Melbourne. So head over to the samishah.com for the ticket link. Top Stories of the Week More Israel, less Gaza Also, is it a controversy if no one cares? And Alan Jones allegedly does what everyone thinks he did. All that and more on News Weekly. Hello and welcome to News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. Israel has a right to defend itself and it would be nice if it tried that instead at least once. News now. The war between Israel and Hamas is now into its third month with no end in sight. If the Gaza Health Ministry is to be believed, as of this recording, at least 17,177 people have been killed and 46,000 wounded. I say if it's to be believed because, as Joe Biden said about a month into the conflict, I'm sure innocents have been killed and it's the price of waging a war. But I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. Except, according to the Times of Israel, Associated Press and Associated Foreign Press, quote, The IDF believes the overall Gaza death toll claimed by Hamas is fairly accurate and that more civilians have been killed than Hamas operatives. So, you know, if it's good for the IDF, it should be good for Biden and for us. Now, what the Gazan Health Ministry doesn't say is how many of those 17,000 were Hamas and how many were civilians. The IDF does say that, however, with senior officials claiming Hamas account for about 5,000 of those 17,000, and then saying that's a ratio of two civilian deaths for every one Hamas fighter. A ratio of two is to one, which isn't bad. Except 17,000 to 5,000 is actually a ratio of three is to one, or 3.4 is to one to be exact, and poor math like that might explain why the IDF is having so much trouble with calculating where best to send its missiles not to kill masses of civilians. They're probably using a broken calculator. The thing is, the IDF doesn't think the ratio of one Hamas for every two or even 3.4 civilians is too bad. Like you can hear Jonathan Conricus, the IDF spokesperson on Germany's DW News. Can you clarify a comment of yours that's been causing something of a stir? You've been quoted as saying that Israel believes uh, it has killed two civilians for every Hamas militant and that this is a tremendously positive ratio. What did you mean by that? Yes, that uh, was, wasn't the very well-chosen words, and they were a bit taken out of context as well. But of course, I stand by what I said before, and, and, and now is a good opportunity to correct that. And for those who may be watching and thinking and taking things out of context, is a good opportunity to set that straight. To understand, in urban warfare, including uh, where German troops have been involved in Afghanistan, and of course where NATO forces have been fighting in Iraq and in Afghanistan, in Syria and other locations, Unfortunately, sadly, whenever there is fighting in urban terrain, densely populated urban terrain, usually the ratio is between 1 to 9 to 1 to 15. One enemy combatant to 15 or 9 civilians. 
That is the applicable ratio, not of Israeli forces, but of Western NATO forces fighting against similar enemies, perhaps in a little bit less complex areas than we are fighting because there's also the elaborate tunnels. That is the backdrop of my comment, which should have been rephrased differently. And what I should have said was, uh, I, every civilian life lost in combat is sad and not the aim of the operation. But if, and I said if, if the ratio is one to two, then it is exceptionally positive within the context of fighting in urban terrain. And Conricus isn't exaggerating either. When I was a journalist in Pakistan, the average ratio of civilians to Al-Qaeda fighters killed by US drones was 10 is to one. 10 civilians on average for every single terrorist. Oh, and this is when a terrorist was any male of adult appearance or age, which meant over the age of 14. In the Iraq war, it's been found that an average of 7 civilians were killed by coalition forces for every one suspected or confirmed enemy combatant. And in the 2014 Gaza war, Israel killed 3 civilians to every one Hamas fighter, according to the IDF itself. And numbers like that are probably why people tend to be a bit sceptical when Israeli President Isaac Herzog says things like this. This war is a war that is not only between Israel and Hamas. It's a war that is intended really, truly, to save Western civilization, to save the values of Western civilization. It's not quite the defense of Western civilization that Herzog thinks it is, unless he's saying Western civilization stands for the mass killings of civilians to further advance occupation oppression while pretending to uphold values to which it has a hypocritical commitment at best, which, you know, he's not wrong. That's about as fundamental to Western civilization as the Magna Carta. But all of this does raise the question of just how the IDF is so confident about how many Hamas it's killed compared to civilians, given that the IDF itself claims it has no way of accurately knowing. Jonathan Conrickus again. Uh, it will take time because when we count Hamas casualties, we rely a lot on what they know themselves. And Hamas doesn't really know itself entirely how many of its operatives are buried underground in the tunnel system that uh, they dug and are operating from. When Hamas will know and uh, be clear internally about it, I assume that we will know. Until then, we're working on various assessments, and that is the main reason why we have not yet uh, made official our estimate of how many enemy combatants. So there you go. They've killed a lot of Hamas, but there's no way of knowing how many until Hamas finds out how many, but it's definitely a lot. Not as many as there have been civilians, but a lot. And after all, Israel is doing a great deal to inform the civilians of Gaza where to move to avoid being bombed. Except for the times, it then bombs those areas as well. On Monday, Israel ordered people out of swathes of the main southern city in the Gaza Strip. As they left, bombs fell on areas still described as safe. It's this kind of stuff that's got even the US to ask Israel gently, gently, to try not killing as many civilians as it's currently managing to. Here's Lloyd Austin, the US Secretary of Defense. I have repeatedly made clear to Israel's leaders that protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral responsibility and a strategic imperative. That's from the US, which normally treats Palestinian casualties like an acceptable price for the Israeli lobby in DC to not call it anti-Semitic, which AIPAC calls basically anyone who isn't a member of AIPAC. 
Meanwhile, the bombing and fighting continues, with Hamas still refusing to hand over the hostages or surrender, and Israeli forces pushing further into Gaza, leading to a humanitarian catastrophe. The head of the United Nations has just invoked, for the first time in decades, Article 99 of the UN Charter, as he warns that Gaza's entire humanitarian system is on the point of collapse. That's fairly unprecedented by the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Gutierrez, as the rarely invoked Article 99 allows him to, quote, bring to the attention of the Security Council any matter which, in his opinion, may threaten the maintenance of international peace and security. Israel has responded in its usual measured and non-hyperbolic manner. Israel's foreign minister has sharply criticised Mr. Guterres, saying his tenure is a danger to world peace. There we go. The problem is Antonio Gutierrez, not the Israeli military and government which has dropped so many bombs on Gaza that one out of every 150 children there has now been killed, according to Med Global, an aid group working in the region. And yes, I know, I can hear you. Israel has a right to defend itself. The question is, when does defense become offense? Because as of right now, Israel is using 2,000-pound bombs. That's how much explosive they contain, not how much they cost. They cost 12,000 pounds. They have a killing blast radius of over 30 meters, or 100 feet. That's the kind of thing you use when you really want to expand on the damage part of collateral damage. And those thousands of Hamas fighters killed amount to at most 10% of Hamas's total force. All while in the West Bank, Israel is also confirming that the threat to global peace isn't quite Antonio Gutierrez. Since October the 7th, violence in the West Bank against Palestinians has exploded. By the UN's estimate, in the seven weeks since the October 7th attacks, Israeli forces killed more Palestinians in the West Bank than in any entire year, more than in any whole year since record-keeping began. Again, this is the occupied West Bank, where Hamas has never ruled and where Hamas is in constant conflict with the government there, the Palestinian Authority. In fact, last month, Israeli forces in the West Bank bulldozed a memorial to Yasser Arafat, the first leader of the Palestinian Authority, whose Fatah party is a long-standing political rival of Hamas. If the whole point of Israel's war is to combat Hamas, why all the violence in the West Bank, where Hamas holds no offices and no hostages? Why go after an Arafat statue? At some point, Israel will realize that the overwhelming footage of dead children in Gaza might start making them look like they might have possibly, maybe, not responded to the October 7th attacks in a reasonable manner. But that point isn't here yet. Here's Piers Morgan, yeah, I know, failing to convince the Israeli ambassador to the UK, Zippy Hotoveli, otherwise. Um, you know, th- this humanitarian aspect of what is going on in Gaza is now something that's requiring unprecedented United Nations intervention. Well, obviously, this is not the case, because many times in the past, there were many types of humanitarian crises in many places. Do you think Mosul didn't look like Gaza after the Americans' airstrikes? Do you think Tokyo, after American airstrikes, didn't look worse than Gaza? So over 100,000 Japanese got killed in the Second World War under American airstrikes. I don't think why didn't the UN call the dropping of nukes on Japan a humanitarian crisis is the winning argument she thinks it is. For starters, the UN didn't exist then. The war with Japan ended in September of 1945 and the UN was founded in October. Mosul is a better comparison. Both were similar-sized, densely populated cities with the same approximate number of inhabitants. And in the 18 months it took to liberate Mosul, 
3,200 civilians were killed by most estimates. Just a reminder, in two months, Gaza has over 17,000 killed, of whom Israel itself identifies at least 12,000 as civilians. And at the time, the UN described it as, quote, the single largest humanitarian operation in the world in 2016. If Israel allowed Gaza to become like Mosul, that would be a vast improvement on the lives of Gazans currently. Indefinite attention news now. In Australian politics, it's business as usual these days, with the major parties trying to create a divisive debate over something that really isn't that controversial and the general public largely doesn't understand or care about any of it. The latest issue that isn't the cost of living crisis is a new High Court judgment. Following a landmark High Court ruling that people can't be held in immigration detention indefinitely if there's no prospect of them being deported. Now the thing is, this is a High Court judgement, which means whether the government likes it or not, they have to accept it and follow through with it. So all the people in detention previously held indefinitely have to be released, which sounds good on paper, except some of them were in detention for crimes like sexual assault or even murder. Which also sounds bad on paper, but in Australia, we don't do indefinite detention for any crime. Which sounds practical on paper until the Labour government reveals they didn't have a plan for what to do after the High Court's decision, so hurriedly came up with ideas like ankle bracelets and curfews and calling the opposition evil. Which sounds pretty standard on paper when you realise the opposition was calling for the government to ignore the High Court ruling. Which sounds like the paper is by this point less a standard paper and more toilet paper. So just what happens when you release lots of people into the community with no adequate planning or supervision and some of them might not be safe to be in that community? A violent sex offender has been indecently assaulting a woman in South Australia just weeks after the High Court granted his release from detention, along with almost 150 other asylum seekers. Afghan refugee Aliyawa Yawari now faces two counts of indecent assault. Another former detainee released in New South Wales is also accused of a new crime, charged with the possession of cannabis. Adam joins me now live from the Magistrates Court. Adam, what do we know about the fourth detainee arrested and charged. Well, Alicia, we know he was arrested at a Melbourne hotel here today. He's Sudanese-born and he's 45 years of age. Not only was he charged today with breaking his curfew under these immigration release arrangements after that High Court decision, but he's also been charged with theft. What police allege is on Friday last week, they say he travelled to Melbourne Airport where they say he stole luggage from a traveller who happened to be asleep in the airport. All of these arrests then are why the government quickly tried to introduce new laws, with them and the opposition engaging in some measured and mature debate. What a shambles. What chaos. Order. What a Order. shambles. The what chaos. Shadow Minister you needs don't to even move want to debate the number one priority the of any government to Order. keep the Order. community Order. safe. Shadow Minister, you're hiding. Order. You're hiding. Order. It's the time list. that the Prime Minister Order. stood the up. The bill gives new powers to lock up previous offenders based on reoffending risk and would apply to the worst of the worst rather than all members of the released group. Meanwhile, the press has spent most of the last few days focused not on the details of the new bill, but that time the Attorney General was a bit rude to a Sky News reporter. Do you owe an apology to those in the community that have been subjected to misdeeds by some of these individuals? 
That question is an absurd question. I will not be apologising for upholding the law. I will not be apologising for pursuing the rule of law. And I will not be apologising for acting... Do not interrupt. I will not be apologising for acting... I will not be apologising for acting in accordance with a High Court decision. The Liberal Party has seen that as evidence of misogyny, which they should know given their hard-earned expertise on the subject. Peter Dutton says he is perplexed as to why senior female Labor MPs are yet to call out the Attorney-General's misogynistic behaviour. Opposition leader Peter Dutton there, who once called a reporter a, quote, mad fucking witch in a text message. The reason senior female Labour MPs haven't called out Mark Dreyfus, by the way, might be because his wife died of cancer four weeks ago, which is something the opposition knows as well, but political point scoring is more important than basic decency. Meanwhile, most Australians are still trying to figure out how they're going to pay the electricity bill, but that's not a big enough news story to give a shit about. Former teacher who wrote love letters to students didn't learn a lesson after all. News now. Since he retired from Sky News in 2021, most Australians have forgotten about Alan Jones, the Sydney-based radio and TV presenter who, in 2012, had been convicted by the New South Wales Administrative Decisions Tribunal of racial vilification and incitement that led to the Cronulla riots. Which is pretty standard stuff, actually, for a Sydney radio presenter. Let's remember, this is the city that also gives Kyle and Jackie O their top ratings. Since then, Jones has become the main presenter on a YouTube channel called ADHTV, where he's joined by other luminaries of Australian right-wing media like Lyle Shelton, the guy who thought gay marriage would result in people marrying dogs, and Daisy Cousins, who is still cosplaying Scarlett O'Hara with slightly less progressive opinions than that southern plantation owner. There they post YouTube videos with upwards of 300 views with titles like The Unseen Risks of Covid Vaccines Revealed and Can Western Civilization Survive? As if Israel isn't currently bombing Gaza to make sure it does. Well, it turns out Alan Jones's legacy is more than just right-wing shock jockery and racism. Now a number of men are using their voices, alleging to the Sydney Morning Herald they were indecently assaulted by the broadcaster when they were younger. His accusers include a former 2GB employee who says he was repeatedly groped and kissed by the veteran radio host. The most prominent alleged victim joined 2GB as a young man. A few years ago, he took Ray Hadley into his confidence. Bradley said he had too much to lose and he'd be crushed by making such an allegation. That's Ray Hadley talking about the accuser. Ray Hadley is also a Sydney shock jock who is currently experiencing a shock himself by being on the right side of history for the first time in his life. Todd Childs is quoted alleging Jones grabbed his genitals openly at a restaurant. Tech entrepreneur Alex Hartman was supported financially by Jones. He reportedly made allegations against his benefactor to four journalists before his death. A fourth alleged victim, a musician, told the Herald Jones's behaviour scared him. A fifth, Marcus Schmidt, alleges Jones groped him too. So it turns out it wasn't just Australia's sense of decency and the rights of minorities that Alan Jones was groping. It was also actual humans. Allegedly. Now, I say allegedly because Alan Jones has responded the only way anyone beloved by conservative media and accused of sexual assault responds, by launching a defamation lawsuit. 
And in keeping with tradition, Alan Jones has gone with the top law firm Mark O'Brien Legal, which it turns out is the same law firm that's currently representing Bruce Lemon in his defamation trial. Oh, and it also represented Ben Robert Smith in his defamation trial. Mark O'Brien Legal is basically the Nick Fury of assembling alleged conservative sexual assaulters. The Molesters, the Endgame. That's it for this week's edition of News Weekly. Like I said, the live show, the 100th episode celebration live show, will be at the Comedy Republic in Melbourne live on January 19th, 7pm. Tickets are available at thesamishah.com. That's T-H-E-S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H.com for the ticket link. Patreon subscribers already know that they get a discount. If you want to get the discount, join my Patreon. You can also get that discount ticket or discount code rather. Um, also, if you like this podcast, please head over to the iTunes and give us a little reviews and ratings blah 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 I ask every week no one does it don't worry about it give yourself a day off relax enjoy something I'll be right here I'll be right back here next week on News Weekly where we punch the news in the headlines weekly